0: Now, Stephen, at the risk of ruining your talk on our identity, uh, I'd love to know who you are or what you do. Always trying to put me in a box, Hugo. Um, no, I'm, I'm, so I am, I'm called Stephen. <laughs> I'm from uh, London. So uh, I've lived in London for about 10 years. I was a criminal defence barrister for seven, eight years. Uh, spent my life uh, defending people accused of criminal offences and love that job. And then uh, a little while ago, I started working for a church, in central London, and it's just a real joy and a privilege to be up in Nottingham, um, meeting lots of fascinating people this week, and the reason I'm here is because uh, when I was at university, I encountered in a new way uh, the person of Jesus Christ. I met lots of great people at university, lots of mates who I'm still mates with, Uh, I met my wife who I'm still mates with, and um, uh, lots of other people, by far the most significant person I encountered in a freshman university was the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's a real joy to come up to Nottingham. And this week, uh, just, just talk a little bit about some of the things um, that I have come to know about him over the last uh, few years. So, yeah, so thanks for having me. Oh, thanks, Hugo. Um, so I want to ask you a question uh, today. And that is, um, uh, do you know who you are? Uh, So we're looking at the idea of what what, what a real identity is. Can I be more than people's perceptions? Do you know how you are? So who you are? I mean, who are you? You know, it's one of the most important questions you ever have to answer in your life. But in a funny way, it's a question we can be a bit reticent, a bit wary of asking people, particularly when we first meet them. So it's very rare that you go up to someone you've just met in a bar or club or um, in halls and say, who are you? Like, who are you? Uh, It just feels a bit harsh, it feels a bit invasive, it feels a bit full-on, it feels a little bit intense. Uh, So we try and work out through different ways. We might try and read their body language, their non-verbal cues. We might try and listen to their voice. We might ask questions about what they do, about what their interests are. Maybe we look at their social media profiles, do a little bit of undercover Facebook stalking or Instagram stalking and try and work out what they say about themselves. What are the things that they do? Um, It might be that uh, we, we try and look at how other people describe them. We might look at what it is they fill their lives with, what are the activities they spend their time doing. But there's also quite an important distinction uh, between the how and the what questions of life, uh, what people do, and the who and the why questions of life, who they are and why they do what they do. So let me give you um, an example. Suppose I invite you over... Uh, for a chat this afternoon uh, to my to the uni to the hall kitchen, um, and uh, we've only just met, but you seem nice, and it'd be quite fun to see how many people we could get in a hall kitchen if you all came. And we walk into my hall kitchen, and the kettle is boiling. And you say to me, "Why is the kettle boiling?" Now I could say. Um, well, it's interesting you asked that question. The kettle's boiling because there's a heat source in the kettle and there's a transfer of thermal energy uh, across the container wall passing into the fluid and causing an increase in the mean square velocity of the molecules proportionate to the temperature. And when that hits 100 degrees Celsius, there's a collective phase transition uh, by which the condensed liquid expands into a gaseous state. And that would be an okay answer. Um, I could say to you, um, the kettle's boiling because I wanted to make you a cup of tea, because I quite like you and I quite like to get to know you. That would be a good answer as well. So the first, the first answer is kind of talks about the kind of how and the what, and the second question says that I'm doing it and the reason why I'm doing it. And it's quite important actually, because it can be so easy to confuse activity with identity. So often we get our lives stuck into all sorts of different things. We fill our lives with lots of activity. And our hope is that somehow, by filling our lives with all these things we do, we will eventually discover, discern, or uncover who we are. And often we do that even when we meet people. We try, you know, sometimes people say, what do you do? They're trying to find out who the person is. Can I work out who this person is by what they fill their lives with? Can I work out who they are? But what if uh, identity precedes activity? What if you've got no way of knowing what are the right things for you to do until you know who you are? What if it's hard to find your purpose until you actually really know your identity? So if I ask you now who you are, you might respond in a number of different ways. You might say, you might tell me your name. And uh, in some cultures, a name can be really indicative of a person's identity. I worked for a number of years with a guy whose name was actually Mr. Brilliant. Um, just spare a thought for that guy all through his life. Every time he introduced himself to someone, they're thinking, like, are you a Mr. Main character? Like, why is that your name? And then they're also thinking, well, like, are you brilliant? Or are you just very good? Are you, like, adequate? Are you brilliant? I don't know. Like, poor guy had to carry that around. Um, you, you might you might say, well, it's linked to my parents. I'm the son or the daughter of X and Y. That's in some way my identity. It might be... Uh, the because we're in Nottingham, we're at uni at 2018, you would say, well, it's, it's, you would give your kind of uni stats. You would say your year, your subject, your course, your hall, your club, maybe where your house is. It might be if you're in the third year, or you're thinking about vacation schemes, you, you would instantly think, who am I? My CV, this account of my life. You know, my, my impressive work experience I've built up to this point, my, my you know, shiny... Uh, extracurricular activities hoping to persuade a recruiter of who you are it might be you're quite relational and you would point to your friendship group and you know some people say that who you are is the average of the five best friends you have so you just need to look at them and say I'm somewhere in the midst of those five people um, but is that the case? Are we just the aggregate of our decisions, our choices, our interests, our geography? Or is there something more than that to us? Are we more than that? What if we're not just accidents? Not if. What if we're not just reliant on people's perceptions of us to give us our identity? What if there is a God who has called you into being and hasn't stopped speaking over you, who's calling you to remember to discover your identity as a much-loved daughter, as a much-loved son of God? What about if that was the case? And I want to look today... Um, at a very short passage in an account of Jesus' life. So you have on your tables um, these things which are like little moleskin notebooks, or maybe they're on your chairs actually. Um, and uh, they, this is an account of Jesus' life. And um, what I would just encourage you to do is to pick this up and to take it with you when you leave. I want you to think of it as my free gift to you. Um, it's not really my gift to you because I didn't pay for it and I don't own it, so I can't really give it away. But I'm going to do it anyway. I think that's fine. But just take this away. This is like my free gift to you and this is yours. And you can keep it. You can write your name in it. You can burn it, whatever you want to do. Um, but it's yours, okay? And so, um, and this is an account of Jesus' life. And I tell you, one of the reasons I was so captivated by Jesus at university was because I read an account of his life. And actually, I spent seven or eight years of my life, uh, as I've said, working as a criminal defense barrister. And what I was doing in that time, I represented hundreds, uh, maybe over a thousand uh, people accused of crimes. It's great to see so many of you here today. And um, uh, what I was doing in that time was I, I, I had to listen To thousands upon thousands of people give evidence, eyewitness evidence, about the events in question. I had to read their accounts. I had to study them. I had to listen to them. And my job, actually, for all of those years, was to test the evidence that they gave. Was to look for where there might be inconsistencies. To look where there might be collusion. To look where they might have tried to put things together in a bid to try and persuade the court one way or the other. And to test that and to draw it out and to challenge it in court. That was my job. That was what I did every day for years. But to my surprise, when I read the account of Jesus' life, this eyewitness account of Jesus' life, I found it compelling. It surprised me. It seemed to have the ring of truth about it. It had things in there which you shouldn't have in there if there was collusion. And other things in there which you would have if it was a truthful account. I found it really interesting. And I just encourage you, if you only do one thing this week, Um, I would read this. It'll probably take you about an hour. It's not very long. It looks long, but it's not. Big type, And um, uh, just read it. It'll take you about an hour. And I would encourage you, don't listen to what I say because you don't know me. Um, Read it for yourself and form your own conclusion this week on an account of Jesus' life. But just to warn you, you can take this away with you, but you should know, this is just a health warning, um, that this book is contraband. It's actually outlawed in a number of countries around the world. So, um, so there are a number of countries right now to date around the world where if you are found in possession of this book, uh, you will be arrested, you will be imprisoned, and actually might have consequences for your family as well. So I just don't know what your travel plans are, so that's just in case. Don't blame me, you know, don't write to me from a prison in North Korea um, and saying, look, this guy, he said I could take it, it's not my fault. Um, I'm warning you, but it might be worth it anyway. Okay? It's that significant. And it's so powerful, it's so dynamite that people have actually, governments have actually outlawed people reading it, which is curious, it's interesting. Uh, But there you are, it's theirs, it's yours. And so we're going to look a very short um, story in this book, and this is uh, Jesus speaking. So it's on page 60, and we're going to pick it up uh, at little seven. There's a little seven, so uh, it's at ten little seven, and on page 60 of these little books, and uh, it starts with Jesus. Um, so he said, therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so they might have life and love it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind?" So Jesus talks about sheep and shepherd in this passage. And you might be here saying, "Uh, hello, it's 2018. I know we're in a field, but we're in Nottingham. I'm a university. Like sheep and shepherd has almost nothing to do with my life. Um, And it's quite interesting. I don't know if anyone comes from a farming background in this tent right now. There's no shame in it. If you do, just wave your hand. Literally, no one person, well, let me tell you that um, that if you come from farming, sheep are wonderful creatures. Um, but they're not known for being the brightest species on the planet. And one of the things that they love to do is to eat grass. They just love eating grass. And so what sheep often do is they will just focus on the next bit of grass. And that's why you sometimes see them up cliffs or in random places. Think, How did sheep get up there? Because they just follow their noses and they follow the next bit of grass they can find. And obviously humans are a superior species. We don't walk around focusing on the next thing in our mind. You know, we don't get fall off stages and things like that because we're focusing at the end of our noses we're very different much more superior to sheep but sheep follow what's at the end of their noses which is grass and they will get lost very easily if it is not for the fact that they know the shepherd's voice and what happens i've got friends who have lived in the middle east and you see this even today is that the sheep will know the intonation the words of their shepherd's voice And so even if a number of shepherds bring their sheep into a market square, a town square, and they all kind of get jumbled up together. Some people are watching and thinking, how is this going to work out? How are they going to sort their sheep out? They're all jumbled up together. There's hundreds of them all mixed up together. The second one of the shepherds uses his voice, his sheep know his voice. And so they follow him out of the market square. It's remarkable to see. But the thing is... Uh, it takes time for the sheep to learn the shepherd's voice. So when a new sheep is born into the flock, I think the technical term is a lamb, um, they, they don't instantly know the shepherd's voice. They don't know the voice. So they, they don't recognize it, they don't trust it, but over time they start to learn the tone and the voice of the shepherd, the types of words that the shepherd uses. And Jesus says, just before this passage, he says, God calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And then Jesus says this remarkable thing. So he talks about sheep, but then he talks about a shepherd. And he says, I am a good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now that might seem like not that a shocking thing for Jesus to say to you. In that context of that culture, it was a completely shocking thing to say because there had been a whole history of God's appointed religious leaders over his people being known as shepherds. It was like common imagery. And often they had turned out to be bad shepherds. And at points God actually castigates those people he has entrusted to lead his people as bad shepherds. And I don't know if you're here today and you've experienced that. Maybe you walked away from the church. Maybe you don't want to go anywhere near a church because you have experienced something of that being led by a bad shepherd. And you've been treated in an unkind way. And if if that is the case, I'm just really sorry. And you should come tonight because Christy's going to be looking at what we do when we have unanswered questions and we've experienced suffering um, in that way. But in spite of these bad shepherds, people still held out hope for a good shepherd. There was an expectation that God himself would come and shepherd and lead his people. And so that's why in one of the most well-known Psalms, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. That this hope that God himself would come and shepherd his people. And what's interesting is Jesus takes all of that imagery here and applies it to himself. I am the good shepherd. Now, sometimes people ask me, did Jesus ever claim to be God? And the answer to that question is, yes. And he does it here in a slightly indirect way, but which would have been obvious to people, the sort of thing that he was indicating by the imagery he used. But he also does it in a very direct way. So if you um, turn over the page uh, to page 64, just, just, just the next little bit along, um, at verse 30, so the background to this is that a claim to be God was considered blasphemy in the eyes of the religious leaders and considered worthy of death by stoning. And Jesus says this at John 10, 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you are mere man claimed to be God. So those who were around Jesus, those who heard what he had to say, those who opposed him, who didn't like him, were in absolutely no doubt about what he was claiming. They were saying that he was claiming to be God. He was clear about that, they said. And they said he deserved to die for it. So that's a really direct a direct claim that Jesus makes to be God. But also here, just using this imagery, I am the good shepherd is a more indirect claim. But it really matters what you think about that evidence. It matters whether you think Jesus made that claim. Because if Jesus did make that claim to be God, there are actually only logically three possibilities. The first is that it's untrue, and Jesus knew it was untrue, in which case he's an imposter, he's a fraudster, and he's an evil one at that, and you shouldn't listen to anything else he says. That's one conclusion you can come to. The second is that the second possibility was that it wasn't true, but Jesus really thought it was. So he thought he was God, even though he wasn't. In which case, we would say these days he was probably deluded or insane, in which case you probably shouldn't listen to anything else he said. But actually, the only other logical possibility is that it was true. He was. And he knew he was. And in which case, it probably is important to listen to what else he had to say. And what else he's saying here about where your identity is found. And whether your identity is to be found in a relationship with him. And when, the thing is, when I, what I love about this passage, this passage we've been looking at, is that it actually includes the reactions to Jesus in this passage. So it includes the fact that some people hear what he had to say, and they said, this guy, this guy we're listening to, you know, he's, he's, he's evil. It actually includes that in this passage we just read. The account of Jesus' life includes people saying, no, he's evil. It also includes people saying, he's mad. He's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? It doesn't airbrush those things out. It leaves them there for you to weigh and consider. That is a surprising thing to have in an eyewitness account of people who, one must assume, are trying to encourage you to believe that Jesus might be God. But then it also includes people who are wrestling with this and saying, well, these aren't the sayings of someone who's evil, demon-possessed. These aren't the kind of things he would do. And I tell you, when I look at Jesus' life, the things he said and did, it seems to me illogical and improbable to say he was um, mad or evil. C.S. Lewis said, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be some sort of great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's insane or something worse. But don't come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. And when I look at the way he lived his life, the things he said and the things he did, I can't persuade myself, try as I might, that he's mad or evil. So I'm left with the only other logical possibility, which is that he was conscious of being a man whose identity was God. Now that is an extraordinary claim. Extraordinary claim. And it needs to be unpacked. But if that is the case, then it really matters what he has to say about our identity. It really matters um, that our identity is ultimately not random, but is found in a relationship with him. That when we're in a relationship with Jesus, just like a sheep is in a relationship with a shepherd, the sheep knows who it is because of its connection to the shepherd and that you might really know who you are because of your connection to Jesus. But how, why would you trust him? Even if he might be God, why would you trust him? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and that really matters. So how can you know he's good? And Jesus says the reason you can know he's good is because the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, there are only two places you can sleep if you're a sheep in the Middle East, basically. I don't know if you know this, but it's true. There are only two places you can basically sleep. If, if you're in the town, so if you had a hard day in the field of the sheep, eating grass or whatever, and then you go back into the town, you've got a good option. The good option is to go to where sheep would sleep when they're in the town, which is normally the house of the shepherd would have uh, kind of like a pen as part of it, and it would have a roof, and it would have walls, and it would have a gate. And so the shepherd would take his flock into the pen... And he would hold the gate. He'd have a proper door, a gate. And he'd open up the gate, get everyone in, all the sheep. hope you're visualizing this. It's really important. And he'd get all the sheep in. And then he'd close and lock and bar the gate. Okay? So you're in there. You're warm. You're safe. You're happy. And Jesus uses that. He says, I'm the gate. I'm the gate for the pen. And if you want to come home, if you want to come into a relationship with God, you have to come through me. I'm the gate. So if you want to know who you really are, through your relationship to God, you need to come through Jesus. That's what he says. But there's another place you can sleep if you're a sheep. It's quite hard to say those two words in close proximity. There's another place you can sleep if you're a sheep. Um, and that's in the fields. So often the shepherds would take their flock into the fields to graze, and night would fall, and then they had to find somewhere to sleep. And they would find a pen, which maybe they or another shepherd would have built, just out of large stones, rocks, and it would normally be kind of like square, just in the field, wouldn't have a a roof on it, certainly wouldn't have a door, it would just have a gap where the sheep could come into this kind of walled pen. And here's the thing, night falls, there are wild animals around, who like to eat sheep. And the sheep have all come into the pen, but there's no door on the pen. There's just a gap. So, what do you do? Well, what the shepherd would do, actually, is the shepherd, as he went to sleep, would lay down his body in the gap in the pen. He would sleep in the gap where the door would have been otherwise. So anything that wanted to come at the sheep had to go through him. So he put himself in harm's way for the sheep. It's really interesting. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And when Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross, when he died on the cross for me, for you, he didn't just lay lie down On the floor like a shepherd. He laid down his life. He gave his life. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. He bore our guilt to win forgiveness for us. To bring us reconciliation to God. You are bought at a price by someone who knew you before you even began to know yourself. Someone who knows you to the bottom of your soul. All of the good. All of the bad. All of you're proud of. All of you're ashamed of all of your successes, all of your failures, knows it all, and yet knows you to the bottom of your soul, and yet loves you to the sky. And he Says here, calls to you to remember who you are, to remember who you were made to be. You see, when you see who Jesus is, you start to understand who you really are. I thought when I placed my trust in Jesus Christ, that would minimize my identity. It would turn it like magnolia, it would turn it boring, everything would become dull. What I found was that when I placed my trust in Jesus Christ, when I started to understand myself, my identity through my relationship to the Good Shepherd, when I started to see it in that way, it actually amplified all. All the other elements of my identity, it didn't reduce them; it grew them. I started to realise that I was someone made by God, with the beautiful complexity that that involves. All the different facets of my life were not disconnected and vague and arbitrarily put together, but that I had been constructed for a purpose by someone who knew me and intended me not to live a random life without meaning, buffeted around by the wind, but by someone who made me for a purpose to have life and life in all its fullness. And that's what I found when I placed my trust in Jesus Christ. I realized that my identity was that I was a much-loved child of God. That I was of infinite value because an infinite price had been paid for my life. And that freed me from building my identity on my status, on my family, on my social media profile, on my course, on my subject, on my year, even on my friendships. It freed me to, have, to be someone who the Good Shepherd laid down his life for. And I found that Jesus actually knew me better than I knew myself and wanted to see me live the fullness of that identity in a life he had for me. And that's why I'm really excited about this passage. That's why I'm really excited that Jesus says he's a good shepherd. That's why I'm really excited that he says that he calls to you and encourages you, welcomes you into the pen back home so that you can know you are fully known and fully loved and that might be the foundation of your identity even for the rest of your life not in a limiting way but in a way that opens up all sorts of possibilities that you might not even have imagined